Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Seatstruck Movie Podcast. I guess this is a bonus episode. Um, this is recorded in kind of a period where uh, our schedules are a little in flux, so we haven't really had a chance to record. So I uh, figured, um, just to give some background, I actually had tried to record this over the holidays as a little piece of bonus content, uh, just a kind of little summary of some of my favorite stuff I watched in 2022. Uh, I recorded it over the holidays, and frankly, I thought it sucked. <laughs> I just I, I thought it wasn't very good. I like I made some really bad like egregious mistakes and like I have a high standard for myself. So like if I get someone's name wrong and I hear it again, it's like the worst thing in the world. So um, I'm sure if you heard it, you probably wouldn't think it's that bad. But I thought it was terrible. I shelved it, and uh, now we've got a little bit of a break. So you know it's still early. It's still pretty fresh in the new year. And there's been a few um, really interesting things that I've enjoyed over the last uh, little while. Um, but it's kind of fun now to kind of reflect on the stuff I watched, you know, well over a year ago at this point. So, um, historically, if you know me, you know, uh, before I even did this podcast every year, I would, um, uh, write like kind of a summary of my favorite things, favorite movies I watched every year. And that's actually kind of the proto, uh, I guess the proto podcast itself was me doing that. And I know me chatting with Curtis about that kind of got the ball rolling to eventually doing, uh, this show. So I think the last the last year I, I had it, it was way too long. It took so long. Um, I didn't release like the entire thing until the end of the year because I procrastinated on it. So um, this year I, I went short, sweet. Um, I might write this, write this out as well too. We'll see how things go. So I always have my Substack link in the show notes. So if you uh, do want to check that out, I'll probably post it there as well too um, if you're interested. So uh, format this year. First I'll talk TV stuff that I watched that I enjoyed. Then I'll get into movies. I've actually separated out into new movies, so I would call that as releases that came out last year in 2022. Or it could have been like 2021 theatrical stuff that was still running. Like, for instance, Licorice Pizza, which I believe came out 2021 late in the year, um, was a big festival film that year. Keep in mind, I'm in Ontario. We had a lot of lockdowns in 2021 on and off. I didn't see that movie until March of last year, and it was still, I believe, in its main kind of theatrical run after the festival circuit. So, you know, stuff like that. That's all I'm saying. So good to look at, you know, new films 2021, 2022 in that particular list. And then I also have a list of first time watches. So older films um, from before 2021 to, you know, antiquity, I suppose, stuff that I watched that I really enjoyed, uh, you know, I would have given it like a four and a half, five star. Um, there's a lot of films, actually, I kind of try to keep it a bit shorter. Um, and again, if, you, if you're a loyal listener, if you listen to every single episode, you've probably heard me talk about these over the, the last little while. So, But if you're not an off listener, you never listen, um, maybe this would be kind of a good entry point. And I, I'll try not to get too into it, because I always say these are going to be kind of mini episodes, and then they go on for like a goddamn hour. So I'll try to go short and sweet. So I'll, I'll start off then talking uh, television. So Mayor of Easttown, this was one of the ones I really enjoyed this year. Uh, short, limited series uh, on HBO, of course, starring the great Kate Winslet. Uh, pretty fun. It kind of takes place in this sort of small town, a suburb, I guess, outside of Philly. Um, this detective, uh, Mayor Sheehan, she, she, she's like a, a local townie who, I guess the big thing is she won this like star, she was a star basketball player who won this high school championship and, you know, her life's kind of a mess and she's kind of a mess personally, but like she's still kind of like a local celebrity, um, but this kind of strange crime happens. A young girl is, um, has gone missing and is later found dead and it kind of kicks off this big investigation and she gets joined by a an FBI detective in town and um, it kind of deals with her kind of interactions with 
all the kind of various people in this town, as well as, you know, Mayor Mayor's character herself. And I, I really enjoyed it. In particular, there was kind of like a mid-season um, big moment that really, like, I thought it was from, like, a just an action standpoint. It was very thrilling. And I really loved the performances. I know Evan Peters was really great in his role. And he had a big year uh, recently with, of course, that Dahmer series. So um, really had a lot of fun with it. I've seen some people say they didn't like it or they didn't like the ending. But I, I actually really thought it was it was quite solid. Um, and that kind of, I think, lends itself well to the next series, which I would say is very similar, uh, which is uh, Sharp Objects. Sharp Objects being the miniseries by the now recently, uh, I think as of a year ago, deceased uh, Jean-Marc Vallée. Um, of course, based on the Gillian Flynn uh, 2006 novel, uh, stars Amy Adams. Um, really kind of fun Southern Gothic kind of story about this crime reporter uh, played by Amy Adams. Much like Mayor and Mayor of Easttown, you know, has a lot of issues. You know, in this case, she's a alcoholic. Um, she's discharged um, fairly recently from a psychiatric hospital. She's we know that she's in the past uh, self-harmed herself. So it's her coming back to this town where she's, you know, living with her parents. And, of course, also with um, her now younger uh, stepdaughter, I believe. Um, there's also, like, sequences that kind of flash back to her past, played by Sophia Lilius, um, kind of showing her past. I, I really enjoyed this series. I thought it was very dark, very moody. Really, the performances were great. I hated the, the guy. I thought the ending was terrible. That's just me, though. But um, I really had a good time with it. I've seen some people say they like this way more than Mirror of Easttown. I, I'm kind of like, I think both are really good, but really enjoyed my time with Sharp Objects. And it's a really, it's a really big shame that uh, Jean McValley uh, passed away because he was such a great Quebecois director. And um, it's too bad he can't kind of move on to do other stuff because I, I think he was such a great, a great filmmaker. And I would have loved to see kind of more series like this uh, with his touch. Um, so other series I enjoyed, Chernobyl uh, might be one of my favorite series that I've watched in you know in, in recent years, at least for for new series particularly. Um, this one's created, of course, created, directed, written, uh, well not directed, but written by Craig Mazin, who now has kind of gone off because he's uh, recently released the uh, The Last of Us. He's the showrunner of that show, which is of course the big show going on right now. I actually I've been watching it, really enjoying it. I haven't even talked about it on the podcast yet because. Uh, just haven't finished it yet, but um, Chernobyl, the miniseries, I believe it's loosely based off of a a novel written about the incident itself too, but maybe maybe I'm wrong on that one. But of course, it's about the April 1986 uh, Chernobyl nuclear power plant disaster, which occurred in Ukraine, while then the Soviet Union. Um, of course, this big incident that, uh, as we kind of follow in this show, we see in the first episode the incident itself that happens, dramatized, and then in the in the subsequent episodes we see this kind of investigation uh, starring uh, Jared Harris, who plays Legasov, who's sort of this, like, director who's been brought in. He's I guess he's considered the expert. He's not really, like, a huge, huge expert, but he's the one who has the seemingly the most knowledge. And then he's also kind of partnered. It's like a little bit of like a buddy cop thing almost with, uh, you know, Stalin Skarsgård does a great job playing Boris Sherbina, who's this older deputy chairman. And, and, you know, the film really explores kind of the failure of the, you know, this is the late eighties of the kind of end of the Soviet union, the kind of failure to really handle and, and grasp the severity of this and how, perhaps issues uh, at the bureaucratic level with the Soviet Union actually exacerbated the issues which caused this disaster. I mean, I'm kind of spoiling it, but it's a famous historical event. So if you don't know, then I would suggest maybe uh, re read it. Uh, but I, I love this series. I loved how it was shot. I love the fact that it's just starring 
a whole swath of actors and they don't even attempt to really like give people you know crappy accents it's all just their normal voice, and it, it makes it feel a little bit more realist and natural in some ways because it feels less like i'm watching uh you know like a play it feels like they're actually just real people and uh it's a really at times it's really disturbing um but the ending i thought i thought the ending of this was very powerful i i, I thought it was uh very emotional and really uh i just i was kind of jaw dropped when i when i watched that final final episode um really great i think they also released a podcast on spotify uh, related to the show as well too to the, you know the events itself kind of going in a little bit more detail so i really dug this series thought it was excellent um winning time the rise of the lakers dynasty that's my next one I, you know, I'm a sucker. I love basketball. I'm, I love basketball. I love LA and particularly kind of like late 70s, Los Angeles in that era. And this is, of course, based on the Jeff Perlman novel, the uh, Showtime Magic Cream Riley and the Los Angeles Lakers Dynasty of the 80s. But it kind of expands a little bit more on that. It's really just a, a, a telling of the, you know, the takeover of Jerry Buss, played by John C. Riley, uh, who took over as owner of the LA Lakers in late seven in late 79 and they would win the championship in that first season and go on to be a huge dynasty but you know kind of follows this team this moment and kind of a huge moment of change they're just drafted of course the great young star magic johnson you know he was drafted came up with larry bird this is just right at the, the cusp of the soon to be bird magic rivalry and we also have some really great performances it's kind of sad that um i saw that um Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Jerry West came out kind of, you know, against the show and they didn't like their their, their performances in this. But I, I thought the actors who played them were, were quite good. I mean, Jason Clark, really great job as Jerry West. You just see kind of the agony of wanting to win. And, you know, this it's kind of a tough, tough um, season for him because, you know, this is him, you know, quitting as as the coach. And this is before he really became the legendary GM. But it's right, it's right at the start. And I thought he did a great job. And I mean, you cannot find a better human being to play. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar than uh, Solomon Hughes. I mean, just, uh, I think, not only, like, Solomon Hughes as an as a human, he's a university, I believe he has, like, a PhD, He he's an academic, he played college basketball at Stanford, he's tall, he's black, like, you could not find a better human being on this planet more qualified to play Kareem Abdul-Jabbar than him, and he was fantastic, and I, it's kind of sad that Kareem didn't like the actor who played him, because I thought it was one of the highlights of the of the of the show itself too um yeah i i was totally into this i love the style of it you know um it's kind of sad that this is sort of the show that caused the fracture between adam mckay and will ferrell but i mean come on john c Riley was so good in this um uh, and i thought it was just shot very well a lot of it's shot on like on on actual film stock so it has this kind of you know, 70s uh, quality to it. Um, it, it ha there's some sequences, too, that kind of go back between, like, shot on film, on, like, it goes between, like, 8mm eight, eight film stock and, like, 16mm film stock, and it has this grainy, just lovely texture to it. It looks so um, naturalistic to that kind of era of television and film, and it looks it has such a great style to it and great swagger to it. And I heard they're actually going to be now um, making a second... Uh, season, which is kind of cool because this will kind of go beyond the book. But I mean, there's so much material to get into, of course. This is even pre-Michael Jordan, so I would love to see um, a new season. Um, I guess it's probably like going to be coming out within the next few months, so I'm sure they've already started filming it. So really excited to see that. Uh, John Adams, this is the HBO uh, miniseries. I loved this show so much. I love, you know, I'm a big 
American history guy. I love my presidents and, and stuff like that. And I really enjoyed this series. I think it's, uh, of course, based on the great, great uh, novel, John Adams, the book by uh, David McCullough, who I believe uh, just passed away, what, like a year ago or last in the last year. Um, you know, he was a historian who wrote a lot of great novels, that being, of course, one of them. He also wrote a really great kind of important novel on Truman as well, too. Um, really, really interesting story, of course. You know, John Adams, the second president of the United States, the first vice president of the United States. Um, you know, he's not remembered, uh, at least to the same degree as, you know, to the likes of like uh, George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, who was a contemporary. They were both contemporaries, of course, but uh, someone who was, you know, massively important on kind of the expansion of the federal government of the United States. Um, someone who, you know, the first few episodes really kind of chronicle him you know, the early days of kind of before the revolution and then it follows like his life. And I thought it was just, I'm not really a big Tom Hooper guy as a, as a filmmaker, but I, I thought the way it was shot, a lot of close-ups and I thought it was really great. I Paul Giamatti was great. Laura Linney is amazing as Abigail. And I think their relationship in this is so strong. Um, you know, and, and I think it does, it gives like a really kind of full fleshed portrayal of John Adams. You know, it's not it's not showing this guy to be this, you know, great man who comes up and he's he's he has all this, you know, um, charisma and captivates everyone. He's someone who was kind of even in his time was kind of written off. He was kind of considered to be, you know, smart but not a really captivating speaker, especially compared to Washington and the, and the show really kind of shows, you know, how Washington was this kind of bigger than, you know, than you'd think figure where like you can see why people really gravitate to him, but you also see his own limitations and David Morse does a great job playing him in, in this. Um, and, but you know, we see like the failures of John Adams as a, as a, as a husband and a father as well too, to his own, you know, some of his relationships with his children, how kind of fractured they become and kind of how, you know, even, you know, just, you know, the world calls on you to be kind of take, take a higher standing and a higher place in government and how, you know, that, that can be personally great for you as a leader, but that could, you know, harm your, your life to some degree and, and what that means. And I, I thought the story was just really great. Um, I, I want to read the novel itself because I'm sure the novel is even better, but I thought the series did a really great job capturing it. Um, last show, so Twin Peaks, uh, you know, you know me, you know, love this show. I watched it for the first time this year. It, it's awesome. I mean, it's dated to some degrees, you know, for its time, of course, it was obviously coming you know out of the era of like the, the 80s sitcoms of like mash and dynasty and dallas and all of these kind of sitcom this is like kind of before uh you know this the prestige the modern prestige era of television you know before shows like homicide life on the street and buffy and all these shows that would kind of really um and of course later like the sopranos like shows that would really create the modern kind of tv landscape i mean this show is one of the ones that really kind of you know is sort of the the er text for those shows and kind of what we get um but great great show i, I love it so I, I thought it was a, a real big blast really great blending of genres it's a lot of times it's really soapy and silly and you're meant to laugh but there's other times where it's very emotional and cathartic and at times where it's very horrifying um and it's got a great score by the late angelo badalamenti um I will say again, the first season, as people say, it's eight episodes. It's great. The first episodes, the first season's amazing. The second season, people rag on it because it's very long, twenty-two episodes, and notably Lynch was kind of not involved for most of it. And I still really enjoyed it, particularly the kind of mid-season finale uh, was probably like the best episode of the entire series. And I mean, obviously, the finale is um, 
I can't talk about it too much because it's a spoiler. Maybe when we eventually do our watch series, but I mean, the finale is one of the most audacious things, um, considering when it came out in 1991. I mean, I watched it and then immediately watched, you know, the return, and I thought like, I can't. Oh, I watched the uh, the rather the movie. Sorry, and I'm like, I, c- I couldn't believe like this was something that aired on like network television. No wonder people were so like hooked and and like mind blown by it. I, but I, I thought it still holds up. It's still really great, really fun. Um, and uh, if you're a fan, especially if you're a fan of Lynch, like if you've seen his stuff, you've seen Mulholland Drive, you've seen Blue Velvet, you like it, I would definitely recommend checking this one out. It's got a lot of you know his kind of usual suspects, Kyle MacLachlan. Uh, we've got. Uh, Sherilyn Fenn, um, and of course, uh, I love Jack Nance. He's awesome in this show. Uh, I love him in everything. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I would say this was probably the, my favorite. All, these shows I've listed, Mayor of Easttown, Chernobyl, Sharp Objects, Winning Time, John Adams, Twin Peaks, probably my favorite shows I watched last year. I watched a lot of other stuff too, but um, these are the kind of the main ones I would talk about. All right, movie time. I think I'll start off with the new movies because I don't even think I have a full 10. I just wrote down uh, a bunch of them. And I guess I'll start off the first one, which is technically, I believe, a 2020 release. But this was supposed to come out, of course, you know, the pandemic that caused a whole lot of festivals to be canceled. It never got a proper big theatrical screening. But it. I, I, I did attend the uh, International Film Festival of Ottawa last year to see this. It got it for its first screening in Ottawa. This is the... Um, uh, Matt Rankin film, uh, the 20th century. Um, uh, Matt Rankin, of course, uh, a filmmaker from Winnipeg. I believe he's a contemporary as well and, and collaborator with like Guy Madden, uh, very much influenced by his style of filmmaking. This film is really cool. It's a fictional portrayal of sort of the rise of uh, William Lyon Mackenzie King. For those of you who are Canadian or don't know your Canadian politics, he was the longest serving prime minister in Canadian history, was uh, the prime minister from you know, in the early 1920s throughout most of the of the early 20th century, you know, up until World War II as well. And this is sort of his early start at the end of the 19th century and, you know, beginning of the new the new century. And I, I loved how much this takes from, you know, Guy Madden's kind of film style. We're looking at a lot of influence of like of expressionist filmmaking, uh, propaganda filmmaking, um, it even I, I read a there's a quote from Matt Rankin. This is I'm just looking at the Wikipedia article. He says one part Canadian Heritage Minute, one part Ayahuasca Death Trip, which is really funny. Um, actually, seeing the screening, he actually aired a bunch of his shorts, which are very much like Canadian Heritage Minute style. Um, and the film the film is really great. It, it's really got this kind of uh, uh, psycho kind of sexual stuff going on with. Uh, uh, with Mackenzie King, if you know him as an actual figure, notably he was someone who was very deep into the occult and had kind of a troubled relationship with his with his mother. It's been speculated that actually he was a gay man, but I mean, I'm I, I don't really know my Mackenzie King history that well to to speak that definitively on it. But he was certainly someone who has been speculated had like a lot of sexual hangups and a lot of hangups over his own life and personal life-wise, and uh, I thought the film was great. Um, really great Canadian film. It kind of really understands the Canadian character and kind of explores it at this period of time. The idea of us as this, like, colonialist nation that, you know, we, we kind of we take pride over being, you know, better than the Americans, but we're really not, and kind of really pokes a hole in how just terrible we are and how awful we are. And also, it reminded me a lot of, like, Kids in the Hall. There's a lot of, like, skits and has a kind of skit feel to it. I, I thought it was a blast. Looking forward to the next next uh, Matthew Rankin film for sure. Loved it. I don't know if it's available to stream anywhere, but if it is, would recommend checking it out. 
The Worst Person in the World by Joachim Trier. I believe this is uh, like the third film of a series of films he's done. A uh, filmmaker from Norway. This takes place in Oslo, following the life of this young woman named Julie, who's this, you know, super... Mille- I mean, she's a millennial. If you're watching this as a Zoomer, this must be like... This must feel like what it was like for us watching like High Fidelity and like the 2000s and like those kind of films. Like it has such an obvious like millennial like affect to it but it's it's about this young woman who is has a fiance who's a little bit older than her too and kind of follows her life her struggles of her love life and her career path and exploring her own character and i mean i don't know how much enjoyment you really get out of it if you're not like a a white urban millennial who's like between their late 20s late 30s but i really kind of connected with like uh, Renate Reinsvay's character, I thought she was amazing in it. It has a lot of kind of like French New Wave, you know, Woody Allen kind of feel to it, which I really liked. And it's a really good portrayal, I think, of the city of Oslo, which I'm not really that familiar with, but looks gorgeous. Uh, and there's some subject matter like late in the film that I just, God, I really kind of connected with. I thought it was like really tough to watch at times with uh, with one of the characters, what they're going through near the end of the film. And there's like a, there's a big monologue that he has that like I had to like like take a cold shower after like not in like a sexual way. I'm in like a just like I, I really like d- bore its way into my soul kind of way I mean I was really kind of uh, touched by it um, I, I feel like this movie's been getting kind of some bad buzz in the last year or so like I feel I've seen a lot of people kind of push back on it uh, but I don't know I thought it was a formatively really great film it was a blast I thought it was really kind of really great performances really fun film i hope it kind of starts to kind of rebuild its uh acclaim this just might be a symptom of me being too online on on film twitter but maybe that's what that is the last duel uh by ridley scott which we're going to talk about at some point because it's uh part of our watch series i suppose i wasn't a big fan of this film when i first saw it of course but i've kind of warmed up to it a little bit especially after watching the duelist i really want to go now and watch this one because i feel like in some ways, The Last Duel is sort of like, uh, I mean, it's kind of like a spiritual remake of, of The Duelist in a lot of ways. Um, I, I thought the story was kind of interesting with its sort of uh, Rashomon kind of plot framework where we get um, different depictions of the different characters. Um, you know, this is taking place like uh, during the era of the reign of like King Charles VI, this particular time and place where uh, one of the knights, uh, Jean de Curreau, uh gets in a kind of squat with... Uh, uh, Jacques Legree, who's played by uh, they're played by Matt Damon and Adam Driver, respectively. Um, Matt Damon's character accuses Adam Driver of raping his wife, who's uh, Joe, plays by Jodie Comer. In uh, this kind of leads to this big duel that happens, um, and we get to kind of actually see kind of three different kind of chapters of the film. One first one from uh, Matt Damon's character's perspective, and then the next one from Adam Driver's perspective, and then the last one from uh, Jodie Comer's perspective, and. Um, it looks great. I mean, it's really Scott, so obviously it looks quite, quite great. It looks incredible. I thought the story was interesting because the first two chapters are actually written by uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, and then the last chapter uh, was, I believe, written uh, by Nicole uh, uh, Center. So it's kind of interesting that they actually had, um, and I loved uh, her film, uh, Can You Even Forgive Me, what she wrote. I thought that was a great a great movie, a great script too. And it's kind of cool because I guess, you know, the, the last chapter is obviously so the, the kind of importance of it, if it's, it's actually focused on the actual experience of her as a woman. And, you know, the film really kind of has this big duel as the main kind of plot framework, but it's really just a device to explore, um, these kind of male ego and also showing kind of the standing of women in this time period in France and, 
I, I thought it was really kind of interesting, and I, I wasn't a big fan of it. I thought I wasn't sure. I didn't really connect that much with their kind of Rashomon style plot framework. I thought it was a little bit needless in some regards, um, especially like. And I kind of knew what to expect. Like, I think if you watch, you kind of know where it's going to go. But um, really visceral, the fight sequences, the it was really great. I'd probably, the the the, the choreography and, and kind of the way it's shot, I mean, the editing-wise, it's it, for a guy who's pushing, what, late 80s now, mid-80s, um, for really Scott, I mean, it's really impressive stuff. So I, I liked it a lot. And I've, I've warmed up to it a lot in the um, subsequent uh, time uh, following this. So uh, Next one is... What should I go with? I'll go with the Northman. I I fucking love the Northman. I thought it was awesome. Really nice, uh, great film by Robert Eggers. I thought it was like a really kind of audacious, interesting film as well too. Like I I don't know. I guess maybe coming out of you know more recently uh, stuff like uh, I guess like the witch and I, I more, well more recently the the um. The Late House, which I, I wasn't that big of a fan of Late House. I mean, it looks cool, but didn't connect with it. The Northmen, I mean, it's kind of like a Viking Hamlet. I believe it's actually like influenced. So Hamlet itself is actually influenced by this kind of classic, like I believe like a Norse tale. And I think this is actually what this is actually based on, um, if if I'm correct. Maybe I'm wrong. Just don't quote me on that. But I, I thought it was great. It had like, it reminded me a lot of like, if you know the video game series Doom, like there's sequences here where like, you know, it I, you're getting like rip and tear style like plot plotting, and I thought it was just really great. I thought um, Skarsgård's performance in it, Alex Skarsgård did a great job, really great, and like his relationship with like his mother Nicole Kidman. There's a scene halfway through where it's like gets you know it's like a revenge story, and you know it's gonna only lead to this kind of pyrrhic end, but it gets so like twisted and dark and. I, I thought it was just really slick. I mean, there's a lot of sequences, like particularly when he's when we see him as an older man, kind of as like this mercenary character, I guess, like almost like a um, a barbarian storming this village. It's it's almost shot like the Revenant or something like that. Like it's all like kind of one one takes. And um, I know financially, I don't think this movie did very well. I mean, that's, I would su suspect it's probably done a lot better ever since it came on like video on demand i don't even know if it's streaming anywhere right now i, th I hope i hope it is oh it's telling me in canada it's on crave which tell tells me if you're in the u.s it's probably on like hbo now or whatever it is so i'm sure it is but if you haven't seen it i would definitely recommend checking it out i think this film is gonna get like people i i seem like most people critically weren't that into it but i feel like it's gonna start to like there's gonna be a reassessment and people are gonna be like wow what a interesting leap after like you know the witch and the lighthouse to make a film this audacious this interesting um really brutal at times too i, I hope it gets more critical acclaim because i saw it and i loved it i thought it was great um crimes of the future uh, god king uh, david cronenberg you know as a as a canadian citizen is my um sovereign duty to go see the uh, the newest david cronenberg movie um kind of a bit of i guess a return to form to some degree because this is him kind of getting back to his like body horror um, affect and you know I, I saw Crash the year prior and Crash was a movie that really stuck with me I loved it and this one it's kind of like if Crash was like in a world where like sexual identity is kind of rather than you know um, hidden uh, and a kind of unaccepted it's sort of like in a world where you know uh, sexual identity is like empowered and desired and kind of commodified and sold and segmented and you know it kind of looks at that and, and also kind of there's a little bit of a character insert with like uh, Saul Tensor, which is Viggo Mortensen's character, you know, there's a scene where like 
he's watching this guy who's like the ear man and like this character's like what do you think about it and he's kind of like ah it's shitty art well he doesn't say that quote verbatim but uh, you can't help but think like David Cronenberg is like thinking about like Julia Ducournau's Titian and you know all the comparisons to that to Crash and kind of having a similar think I don't know it was kind of interesting to see that um, him kind of uh, have that kind of more uh, autobiographical uh, role in the film I don't know and uh <laughs> Saul tends to the film he's constantly coughing and hacking and like I had like watched this like recently recovering from like COVID so like I kind of like connected with him I'm like it seemed like he had like a long COVID that was kind of a big joke so uh, I loved it I thought it was excellent one of my favorite movies of the year um, Mad God Mad God is probably my second favorite movie of 2022 uh, a movie that I had a absolute blast with um really really great time watching this movie as well too um what i think was kind of interesting about uh, mad god is that it was a very audacious film you know this is phil tippett's big directorial effort something that he has worked on personally for the last few years the last most of it being of course i think crowdfunded it was i believe kickstarter film they released a few parts of it and then they announced finally it was going to get completed with a bunch of extra footage added. It got what kills me is that I was because I was recovering uh, from COVID at the time. I didn't want to risk it, so I didn't go to the screening to see it. And it was like the only screening it had at the main fair. And I'm like, it's now like my top five biggest movie regret not seeing it because I watched it on Shutter and I fell in love with this movie. I thought it was just such a great. Uh, film achievement uh, at a career technical at a technical level it's so it's so amazing we're getting throwback phil tippett like stop motion puppetry and i've seen people say like oh the film is kind of aimless there's no story and i, I don't really actually agree with that at all i think the film has a pretty very clear story um with this kind of this soldier character descending into this like otherly world uh, to like drop off this bomb and then it kind of transitions to like another character when his story kind of goes awry and the second half of this film almost goes like more almost like full 2001 space odyssey it gets very like metaphysical and i i also i mean there's a lot of it to me this reminded me a lot of especially the first half of this film a lot of like if you've played like the um from software games like demon souls and bloodborne or even like the um the works of like uh, if you play the Odd World games or like the Eric uh, Shahi uh, games, like Heart of Darkness and Another World, like it reminded me, it had that kind of affect to it. And I don't know if like Phil Tippett's a gamer, but I suspect he might be because I, I there's a lot of that kind of influence there. Um, you know, this could have been really dumb. It could have been like full heavy metal kind of wankery, but instead it's a total visual feast and it shows like the you know. It's an exploration into kind of mankind's depravity and the pain and suffering of people inflicted on the world and, you know, the cost of war and violence on ourselves, you know, in, in contrast to the beauty of the natural world. And I, I thought the film was just amazing. Like, I'm rushing to buy this on Blu-ray because I think it just got a nice big release. And I would love to see, like, all the neat special features of how this was made because it's just so intricate. Um, loved it. Uh, had a blast with it. Um one I almost forgot. I was actually didn't have this on my list, but God, I'd be for remiss if I forgot this. Uh, we're all going to the World's Fair by uh, by uh, Jane uh, uh, Schoenbrunn. Um, I think it's the first directorial effort by uh, Jane uh, Schoenbrunn. Um, this one had a lot of buzz. This was like the big kind of like under the radar, like cool kid film Twitter film of like 
2022. Uh, it's like the ultimate Zoomer film. It's got a soundtrack by Alex G. It's a story about this kind of like mentally ill like girl who's like this internet latchkey kid who kind of uh, is obsessed with this kind of online like role playing game called uh, we're all going to the rules that's sort of the world's fair and it's they're kind of reading all these watching all these videos and kind of strikes up like an inappropriate relationship with this like man who seems to know about this sort of uh game it's not like an actual video game it's just like a it's like you do stuff in real life and film it um you know i i guess i connected with it a little bit i mean as like a as a former internet latchkey kid myself i kind of saw a lot of myself in anna cobb's character to some degree but at the same time this is more for like the creepy pasta like modern generation which i'm probably a little bit too old for um but i i thought it was good although i will say like it was a little bit more mumblecore than i thought i thought it was just gonna be more of like a straightforward horror film and i kind of like to me it was like if this had been more of like a short film i would have loved it a lot more um, but it's really grown on me in the in the years since I've seen it, and I actually ended up blind blind buying my first ever vinegar vinegar syndrome Blu-ray because um, they had a big big I think it was for um, Black Friday they had a big sale, and I was kind of like you know what I want to try out buying one of their stuff and I you know I don't want to buy something I've never seen before so this was actually released through one of the partner labels so I bought it came in some really great packaging it's got a whole bunch of goodies on it really excited to watch it um, and if you're interested in kind of like films about kind of the internet it's got a lot of like analog horror influence something recently like skinner Inc. kind of exists in sort of the same uh i would say almost worlds or not world but rather it kind of exists in the same sort of genre or subgenre of kind of film I, I i like what this kind of i love this kind of new analog horror genre of film that's kind of really coming out and coming strong in the last few years um i'm all for it so I think this film is going to be looked on very, very highly praised in the, you know, the next 10, 15 years. I think people are going to look back on this and be like, wow, this is like criterion collection material. I think that that's where it's going, but I wasn't obsessed with it, but it's grown on me a lot. So I've got to mention, um, we're all going to the world's fair and to wrap things up, probably my favorite movie of, of the year, perhaps, or at least it was one that, when I saw it, I saw it early in 2022 and I just like, it restored like my faith in like cinema and like, I, it was a, just an interesting time and place because this was right after a big lockdown. Um, and it was my first time seeing a movie back in the, the Lansdowne uh, Cineplex. I hadn't been there in like many years because of COVID. And it was, uh, this is of course I'm talking about, I'm talking about Licorice Pizza, the Paul Thomas Anderson film. Um, what a, what an amazing, fun, funny film. And, I got to just get off the hop. This film had like a really obnoxious discourse on film Twitter. People were talking nonstop about the age gap relationship. And I just want to say like, this is actually explicitly called out in the film. Uh, so if you're like still harping on it, like the, the first 20 minutes of this movie is them being like, this relationship's really fucked up and like, you can't, and it's it, like, they, it's, it's, it's text, it's not even subtext. So, um, I don't know if your takeaway watching this movie is that wow Elena sure was creepy like I, I don't know what to say to you like I just don't think like I, I just don't think you really connected with this movie and maybe it's because it's such a boy movie like I hate saying that but like it kind of is like it's about you know so much of the movie is following um the, the younger Hoffman <laughs> I thought he was great I loved uh Cooper uh Cooper Hoffman he plays this kind of boy Gary Valentine he meets this girl young woman played by Elena Haim of course from the the group Haim and actually 
Haim, the band, and all of her families in the movie, too, as her actual family, which was a lot of fun. Um, but she like, she kind of strikes up this friendship, quasi-romantic relationship with this young boy. He's a, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think the film really connects. I think you can really connect with this film if you reflect on your own kind of adolescence and, you know, time. You know, when we go from, you know, our, our late teens to our early 20s, there's a lot of, it's not like you just turn 18 and you're, bam, you're a mature adult. It's a lot of, it's like, you know, there I, I I knew sixteen year olds who were like well above their standing. Like in this movie, Gary Valentine, he's like this teenager, but he's like has his own side hustle and like a business and he's in all sorts of different avenues and he's you know, he's trying to get kind of famous and Elena Haim, who's this like twenty something, but she's kind of like in this arrested development period. All of her friends are kinda of older, doing their own thing, have relationships, and she's kinda of stuck. Um, and she kinda of connects better with Gary and his friends than anyone else, but uh, it's a nice little slice of life film about kind of LA. It's very aimless, um, but I, I thought the affect of it was fun. I laughed a lot. It's a super funny movie. There's a whole sequence with like uh, with Tom Waits and Sean Penn, and it's so like creepy, but also so the way that kind of it kind of develops itself is so funny. Um, really, really great performances in, in it, and the best needle drops of the year. Like the the soundtrack to this is is wild. Um I really loved it. I mean I love Paul Thomas Anderson's films, great obviously filmmaker, but this one to me, like um I think it's gonna like be remembered even better over the next few years. Like now that like the 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 bad discourse has kind of slipped away. Um I'm still seeing a lot of people kinda like, yeah, didn't like it or like didn't think it was anything special. But I don't know. For me it was just something that I just it, it, like it was I had like I came out of it like feeling so just energized and warm and like smiling and happy like seeing a film like this um you know in, in a time where not only like coming out of like constant lockdowns and covid and restrictions but also just the state of sort of the the film landscape itself and movies and how you know so much doom and gloom about the you know the, the future of theaters and theaters closing and opening and um it made me think you know what maybe we're all going to be okay so that's uh, that was probably my favorite movie of the year, but I would say all of these like that I just talked about, all kind of uh, good in their own way. All right, I'm going way too long, so now I'm just gonna go through um, older movies I loved. I'll just start kind of from maybe the I didn't have an order. I just kind of wrote down a bunch of them. Uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man, Japanese film. It's uh, shot on I think mostly eight millimeter. Um, it's a very short film too about this sort of character who um, accidentally like hits uh, drives. I think he. Drive, it's been a while since I've seen it, but he drives over this guy who's like this twisted metal guy, and the next day he starts to kind of see metal like come out of his body, and it's like he has this sort of infection, which turns him into this sort of like half man, half machine thing. But I mean, it's nothing like Iron Man. It's like beautiful uh, black and white. It's I think yeah, it's sixteen millimeter. Um, it's only an, about 67 minutes long, but it's really like sonically just oppressive and there's so much sweat and machinery, a lot of confluence of like machinery and, and steam and like human, human organics and sweat and, and, and all of that stuff. And it has a lot of like expressionist cinema kind of style and shots a lot. Of, it's, I mean, shot in black and white and a lot of like deep, dark, dark shadows and facial expressions do a lot of the heavy lifting here. And there's even like a little bit of like, I think like 1980s like AIDS panic the idea of like this is like this like sexual disease that takes over you um 
in the sort of like really interesting and I love the like kind of the transmogrification that happens where it like takes over the body. Um, for some people, you're gonna be like, what the fuck is this movie? But if you got a strong stomach, if you can handle weird psychosexual shit, like I, I would recommend Tetsuo the Iron Man. Really, really awesome film. Saw it as like a little almost like a midnight screening. It was a, a real real great experience. Uh, the Act of Killing, the Joshua Oppenheimer documentary. I had the, I've had this on my watch list for probably the, an entire decade. I think I first saw the trailer back in 2012. I'm like, wow, I really want to see that. Of course, I've seen all the acclaim reviews, people saying it's one of the best documentaries ever made, and I've always wanted to see it. Finally said, you know what, had enough. I think it was on Mubi. I watched it, and uh, yeah, well, it's as great as people say, obviously. It's... Um, I, I, it's interesting because, like, when I first watched it, and I don't want to spoil too much, but, I mean, it's based on true events about uh, her, the horrific murders and killings in Indonesia of kind of communists and dissenters of the government. And it follows sort of Anwar Congo, who's, like, was one of the big main perpetrators and follows him and his kind of accolades. And, you know, it's the modern day. It's modern Indonesia. Um they're still associated with like far right militia movements, but otherwise they're older. They're all they've got families now. They're you know times moved on, but it was really fascinating seeing this kind of character study. And I don't know when I first watched this, I was kind of like, I think he's just bullshitting. Like I just I thought I didn't I didn't buy it, but apparently that contradicts uh, some of what the filmmaker himself believes. So kind of interesting. I mean, there's a sequence here where there's like a character giving like a fog of war style monologue about you know his war crimes and he's he's walking around a shopping mall that looks to me like it could have been like Bayshore or like Plaster Orleans like I was really it was really disturbing because I'm like wow you know it makes you think about the people who walk among us like what they've done in their past and I mean um, I, it's a really just disturbing film about how people can kind of get into how, how murder can be perpetrated and be done so flippantly and, and how this can be done and hurt people and how we kind of reflect on our past and what we've done um really disturbing stuff um crime wave okay crime wave is a wild movie it came out in 1985 and if you search up crime wave 1985 you're gonna get the uh, sam raimi film it's not the same sam raimi film this is by a canadian filmmaker john pisis um i don't really know how to describe this movie it's sort of like unlike anything i've really seen it has like a it's I think uh, it's it's referred to as like a prairie postmodern film. Um, it's this like kind of surreal black comedy. It has almost like a Dick Tracy affect where we follow this writer named Steve Penny. He lives above this garage. It's kind of this like 50s Leave it to Beaver style family. Um, but he, he strikes up a relationship with their daughter and he he's this uh, color crime writer. So he writes these kind of like Ex, you know exaggerated crime stories where he can only write the beginnings and endings and not the middles and it, it's all done as like a series of mini films there's like eight mini films in this movie it's so overwrought and laden but um it's so fun and uh like i was just i had a blast watching it and i i saw this at uh, the bytown and they had like a kind of intro with uh paul corope who's like the kind of exploitation.com guy and talked about this film so it was it was really cool seeing it in that in that experience and I, it was a total blast loved it loved it um singing in the rain i just saw this recently um i mean it's a classic i'm sure you've seen it maybe you have maybe you haven't but i mean it's considered one of the best musicals ever and it is it's super fun it's beautiful um obviously the, the movie babylon which just came out is like kind of quasi like a remake of this to a degree um it's 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 fun to watch these old canon films that people talk about is like these are the best movies ever made the greatest film of all time and you know you just kind of you, it's kind of like cultural osmosis you just kind of get it into your brain that okay it, yeah sure it probably is but 
you're like, is it really? And then you watch it and you're like, wow, this was this was amazing. This is the greatest thing. And I had that experience watching this movie. Super funny. Like I, I was laughing a lot just out loud. Like this, the humor is so timeless in it. Um, great movie magic. It's a very meta film. You know, it's about kind of the the transition of like the silent era to the talkies and uh, this character, this kind of two characters kind of meet and kind of strike up a romantic relationship played by of course gene kelly and debbie reynolds and debbie reynolds is this really amazing kind of performer but she ends up doing the voice of this other character who's like supposed to be uh gene kelly's kind of other half uh film wise but she can't really doesn't have the voice for it um it was super funny great jag great great uh, gags and great physical comedy too as well um and i i just thought it was um it was super funny i, I had a blast watching it really 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 brilliant film um the Night of the Hunter, uh, I, I'll go even quicker because I think we're at, God, we're at 45 minutes or like when I edit this down, it may be shorter. But Night of the Hunter, uh, really fun um, film directed, if I, if I remember correctly, uh, by uh, Charles Lawton, who I think this was the only film he ever directed. He was a actor, a pretty acclaimed actor, but he made this movie, never made another one. I mean, talk about like dropping something amazing and then dipping stars, of course, Robert Mitchum as this sort of twisted uh serial killer preacher who he finds out that one of the men who's in jail is actually has store has hidden away money for his wife and so the priest comes to town and wants to you know marry the wife and get the money and it kind of follows the kids who are involved in this um it's a it's a really um interesting film i mean it's got like so many shots in this where you're like you've seen it on like the those twitter accounts where it's like any frame of painting and it's like they post them and they get like uh, 20,000 retweets and upvotes or whatever. And there's so many shots in this that are so just beautiful. Um, but I loved this kind of expressionist infused noir film and how it's a little bit of like a um, fairy tale affect to it, uh, especially in the later half of it where um, it kind of has this really interesting kind of whimsical kind of feel to it. I don't even know really how to describe it, but um, really great film. Uh, it looks it looks amazing and it's got a great style to it and robert mitchum i mean he's just relentless in this film just so charming and handsome but so so menacing underneath and when he turns it's just like so twisted the how how he turns in this um memories of murder the uh, bong jun ho film bong jun ho film uh awesome i had a great time watching it but i gotta say i just watched Kier by kiyoshi kurosawa and i think Kier is probably a way better movie no offense uh bong i love the bong hits but uh, Memories of Murder is still a really great film, a film about, you know, inspired by true events in the 1986 uh, province in, in Korea um, about a young woman who was found raped and murdered. And these uh, this detective comes to town and he's kind of contrasted by the local townie police who are have this penchant for like doing like jump kicks. <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, Song Kong Ho plays one of the local townie uh, policemen, uh, but it kind of like shows these characters trying to investigate this murder and it's just taking place you know right during the time where korea was transitioning from like a military dictatorship to a democracy so uh, going through a big transition in time um but it, you know this movie obviously is something that like i would say clearly very much inspired like david fincher's zodiac um and it's got a, just a really interesting and powerful ending in this i mean um i love how you know zodiac's more focused on like the cops themselves and the kind of the disillusionment that comes with like bureaucratic police work. But you know, this one is just like showing you how, um, 
these cops are honestly kind of just like aggressive alcoholic assholes who just piss everyone off and make things kind of worse to some degree. It's a very wet movie too, very moist <laughs> as well. Um, but it, you know, it kind of shows like it has like this. Just the ending is just um, brilliant. Like it's so good. Uh, for many people, this is actually their favorite Bong Joon Ho film, and I don't know if I put it above Parasite, but it's it's really good. The Empty Man by David Pryor. The story kind of about this film has been interesting. This film uh, was just like dropped onto streaming, I believe. Like it was a Fox film, and when Disney bought Fox, this film was kind of in limbo. I don't even know if this got a proper uh, theatrical release, but it all out of, out of nowhere just like was dropped onto Amazon Prime, and it still is, I believe, available to stream on Prime Video. Or I mean, maybe it's oh, apparently it's on Disney Plus now. Wow, amazing. I mean, great. I'm glad it's actually on Disney Plus. It deserves to be recognized because this is one of my favorite studio horrors I've seen probably since Annihilation. And if you know that, it means it's been many years. Um, I loved how the film ate a lot of stuff I love about horror. It has so much J-horror influence. The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing is an obvious influence. It's even, again, got that like modern internet analog creepypasta horror influence as well, too. Um, it kind of felt like it was merging all these things together to make its own thing. And for a digitally shot film, I thought it looked very good. And it's got an opening prologue uh, sequence that, I mean, it, it's the, the cold open to this. It's like it's in a, as itself is like a short movie. It would be like incredible. Like it's a very disturbing short movie, but I still love the entire story of it. Uh, the kind of mystery behind it. And I thought uh, the performance, the main lead performance by uh, James Badgedale, who played James in this, like I thought he did a great job and uh, I was just really absorbed. I thought this movie was just really just engaging and it's so fresh and interesting and it hasn't gotten a lot of buzz, but um, it's still just at times like watching it, it's just got like, uh, this really interesting way how it uses it's kind of it's digital quality to it you know I, I i was reading a review recently where i was talking about kind of comparing it to something like inland empire and how it does its horror and i, I mean you kind of see that with like sort of shakiness near the end it's really really interesting and really inspired uh pink flamingos i had a blast with this but Definitely the this is probably the most edgy film on my list. I guess maybe Tetsuo is up there, but this is definitely the edgiest, most wild movie on my list. It's you know this movie someone eats dog shit for real. You see an asshole uh, singing. It's it's John Waters, baby. You're it's what you're getting. And this is the I, I would say if you're gonna watch John Waters, maybe start with like polyester. You start with uh, one of those, and then maybe watch Pink Flamingos. I wouldn't say this is a really great starting point. Um, but I mean, this film is great. This is the ultimate performance by Divine, uh, playing kind of a fictional version of himself uh, as sort of the uh, filthiest person alive, and how they Divine and his and his, and her family kind of strike up this kind of rivalry between uh, Connie and Raymond, who are these like this married couple, and there's this whole like subplot of like they're running this business that's like they're they're breeding children, and it's really like. This is kind of, I mean, this is literally a horror movie. I mean, it's terrifying, and uh, but it's it's just it's got this wild style to it. It's so low budget, it's so cheap, but like it's just it feels dangerous to watch it. I think I I, I found a there's a really great tweet a few years ago by Adam Naiman talking about you know what are films that are evil like not talking about films that depicted or thematically you know it's part of the film, but films that just have this quality of like you know you shouldn't be watching it. It feels dangerous to watch it, and like. I, it's 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 something to the movie itself that it's you know it's fifty years later and this film still feels like really transgressive and and really shocking and 
really disturbing. I mean, there was a guy like at the front row watching this because this was the secret screening film. And like, as soon as we saw the singing asshole, he just got up and left. Like, it was too much for the guy. He was like, he was sitting right by himself, right in the front. He was like, I can't handle this. So that was, uh, that was really funny, uh, seeing that. And, uh, yeah, loved it, loved it. Um, what else is left? I think I've, no, I think I got it. Oh, Hard Boiled. Uh, John Woo's Hard Boiled. Excellent action filmmaking. Uh, uh, Chow Young Fat. I mean, my wife was saying, oh, Chow Young Fat kind of looks like David Tennant, and now, like, I can't unsee it. Like, he definitely does. <laughs> but uh, Hard Boiled's great. Uh, just a really interesting action spectacle. Um, I'm not really that, sadly, I'm not that well versed in, like, Hong Kong wire foo kind of cinema, but I, I now want to watch more of it because, like, this is just so. The, the just the attention to detail in it is it's, it's fantastic there's a great sequence in this at like uh, one of the warehouses that it looks just like a it's shot like a musical and um apparently john Woo himself has always wanted to make a musical and i think it explains a lot because he has that eye for you know great big panda vision style cinema um and it's it's just that opening sequence with the at, at the shootout uh it's so it's so good it's just it's great I, I'm really trying to speed up here to finish up before the hour. And I'll just end with uh, Thief, Michael Mann's Thief, um, a film that I have, I think when I first watched it, you know, near the end of the year when I first did this list, I was kind of like, nah, it's like my top 10. This might be my favorite movie of that I've I saw last year because um, the story just feels so pure, straightforward. Um, for a debut picture by Michael Mann, it's just so impressive. It's got that amazing pulsating Tangerine Dream score. Um, you know, we're seeing beautiful cityscapes, it kind of drab, ugly, it's urban. Um, we go from dingy diners and we, you know, there's no compromising on kind of the color of this film and the visual aesthetic. And James Caan is just, a, a, I mean, rest in peace, James Caan, just an incredible performance here. You know, someone, he kind of always feels powerful in this film, even when he's literally lying on the ground being having the shit kicked out of him he always he's always he's always confident he's always in control i mean there i don't want to spoil it but there's this there's this scene with the police where he's like um the police kind of bust him for like a they break break his tail light and they bring him to print to jail try to intimidate them and he's just like he's like did it ever occur to you to try to work for a fucking living and he's like uh, you know do your own stuff and he just like calls him out as like total fucking leeches and it's just it's so satisfying because he's surrounded by cops you'd think anyone else would have been you know pissing their pants and he's just chewing them out and like to the point where they're ready to, to fight him in the, in the and it's so i watched it and i was like tears in my eyes clapping i couldn't i was i was so happy watching it gotta rewatch it um and amazing i mean michael mann i mean i know it's kind of a you know, if you're on film Twitter, a lot of bros out there like him. But, I mean, he's a great filmmaker. You you watch Thief. I even like The Keep. I saw The Keep recently. Uh, really fun film. Not without its warts, but really interesting film visually, too, sonically. I think it's got another score by Tangerine Dream. And, um, and of course, Manhunter. Oh, man. Uh, well, that's I guess that's about it. So what do we got? Tetsuo the Iron Man, Act of Killing, Singing in the Rain, Crime Wave, Pink Flamingos, Night of the Hunter, Empty Man, Hard Boiled, Memories of Murder, and Thief. Yeah, that's, that's it. So those were some of my favorites. Um, yeah, check those out, I suppose. Um, if I had to really recommend ones that I would be, like, wary of, if you're not, if you're, like, if you're a bit of a normie, <laughs> if, if, if you see, like, nudity in a movie and you get, like, you can't watch it, then, like, definitely don't watch, like, Crimes of the Future. Don't watch uh, Pink Flamingos. Don't watch Tetsuo the Iron Man. Uh, I would say those are the most, like, wild movies that are on this list of, of new and old stuff, but 
otherwise everything else is like pretty tolerable i'd suppose um i might even say like 20th the 20th century is also kind of on that list but i don't know if you're canadian it's your duty to watch it i suppose it's CanCon. you know you can't deny it so that's about it so i've already seen a lot of cool stuff this year i don't want to like get into like the whole the new year so far but Obviously, the new year, I just saw Son of the White Mare, a fan, amazing animated film. I love Parents, the Bob Balaban film. I just love watching the Basket Case series. I even liked White Noise, the Bombback film, which I saw this year. I know it came out like 2022, but like I saw it just in the new year. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of cool stuff I've seen this year already. It's been a really like banner year for stuff. I just maybe I've been I've been making a point to catch up on my watch list, and so now I'm watching a lot of interesting new weird stuff so i'm gonna have a lot more stuff to talk about next year so that's about it and uh take care